Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Marcus Rempel. Marcus and his family live at the Plowshare Community Farm in South St. Owens, Manitoba. A son of Mennonite mission workers, he has been a cross-cultural kid all his life, an insider and an outsider wherever he lives. Professionally, he's been an occupational therapist, a mental health clinician, a hydro justice worker, a market gardener, and a pastor. His first book is Life at the End of Us Versus Them, Cross-Cultural Stories. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Marcus Rempel. Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It is uh, it is a real blessing to be here. Um, I've I've listened to a lot of episodes uh, of Give and Take. It's just I, I think you just hold a really important space uh, in in the culture conversations right now. Of that that goes takes us beyond a us versus them kind of way of being, which of course is. You know, that's part of what my book was about. So I, I, I'm just that is I'm totally book. tickled. Book, I'm totally tickled. Your book quite literally is life beyond us versus them. And my, my sense is that this has been kind of a, a, a long journey for you, right? That this kind of you grew up in traditional kind of religious circles. You, you grew up in an Anabaptist kind of Mennonite tradition. So this is, I mean, for our, our people that don't know what Mennonites are, I mean, some people think of it as like Amish light. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But this is a kind of Christian tradition that comes out of the Reformation period that was sort of a little more radical and it's following the example of Jesus than say Calvin or Luther or these people. They they kind of, they thought they were into nonviolence and the Sermon on the Mount and and lived on the margins of, of society as a kind of counterculture because they were kind of driven away from mainstream society. So you kind of, you grew up in that and, and, and it seems like your book, Life Beyond Us Versus Them, is sort of your unpacking some of the expansiveness of your engagement with the world, like beyond that tradition, but from right. that tradition. Yeah, yeah. Like I think the us versus them that Mennonites fall into uh, is probably, James Allison talks about uh, getting addicted to our own goodness. Um, and and when I heard him say that, I was like, that's that's the Mennonite addiction for sure, is is an addiction to our own goodness and our own righteousness. And I, and I think that that stance of, of separating ourselves from the world uh, as as developed as as we would say it in in Plotich, um, you know that that created a kind of identity of 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 over againstness to the to the rest of that big dirty messy sinful world that we kind of tried to keep away from, uh, and and I yeah I really. Uh, through engaging both with Illich and Gerard, I think I found some doorways out of that uh, that kind of too, too stuffy of a container uh, and too judgmental of a container, but that still really, uh, you know, deepened the conversation about violence and nonviolence that I think has been at the core of the Mennonite project ever since its inception. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting in the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, just, you talk a little about Rene Gerard, who's this great kind of, French ritual theorist and social theorist who's who's an, analyzed the whole scapegoating phenomenon. How we all we we look 
for scapegoats to get rich to sort of get it's the ultimate kind of us theming, right? We find a scapegoat and they become themed and yeah. they kind and of And we become and, an us and we become right. an us, you know, at, at least as importantly through that ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, you, you know, you, 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 the common enemy, right. Makes, makes for interesting bedfellows. Like, so, so our kind of scapegoating someone, you know, uh, makes us, binds us together. But you talk about interesting how you talk about the role of violence, in the secular state. And it's interesting. You said, instead of monopolizing and sanctifying good violence in the name of God, the state pulls out its guns in the name of new abstract ideals, democracy, order, or the responsibility to protect, to understand the origins of this good violence and its sacred justifying myths. We turn now from birth of the state to the birth of religion. It's interesting. Do you find that right now in light of the killing of George yeah. Floyd and some of the protest yeah. movements in North America, people is is people are seemingly right questioning the legitimacy of state violence right now of of, of just how legitimate and orderly and constructive it is. Absolutely, right? yeah. I'm I'm really glad you raised that. Um, you know, one of the one of the really uh, pivotal books, kind of in the Girardian canon, uh, came out. I want to say the the mid '90s. Uh, or even early '90s by a guy named Gil Bailey. It was called "Violence Unveiled," um, and and one of the the stories that uh, Bailey really digs into is the uh, the the video recording of the beating of Rodney King uh, as a kind of uh, you know perfect example of the kind of dynamic that that Gerard is talking about when he talks about uh, the modern age through an influence of the Christian gospel, which, which increasingly makes us uh, uh, sort of tear back the veil of official sanctified violence, which is the kind of violence that crucified Jesus. And, and we start seeing around us more and more other figures that look kind of like Jesus in that they are being uh, uh, unjustly, uh, you know, not literally crucified, but, but unjustly violated by st- by by the official actors, the official carriers of power in our society, uh, and and once once that gospel story gets inside your head, over time, over time, over time, you you, you start noticing things that you can't not notice anymore. Um, and uh, and and uh, and Gerard ties this to the Christian sense of the apocalypse, which literally means the revealing, the the unveiling. And and Bailey Bailey has this this fantastic quote about the the way in which when you know what is the apocalypse? The apocalypse is that moment when when the distinction between the good violence and the bad violence breaks down, and the good violence can no longer be given the legitimacy to hold order. And and we're in that we're in that moment right now of you know like Derek Chauvin looks like a thug like any other thug. Um, and and his violence looks like like any other kind of violence, and and our ability to to believe in some kind of institution that has some kind of special sanctified violence that's different than the from the violence of the street, and they're going to hold order. We can't believe in that anymore. Um, and it's it's liberatory, but it's also very very dangerous. Um, you know, you think about you think about like we're 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 talking about toppling monuments right now. Um, and you know, so, some people in power probably are like in the French Revolution. They were top, toppling monuments before they were cutting the heads off of uh, Marie Antoinette and and Louis, right? And and there's probably some people that are feeling nervous. And in some ways, I'm excited to see like 
that challenge of of the elites going on. But I I'm also very much aware, and and Girard was very influenced by this himself. The story of the French Revolution, like once they brought that guillotine out and started chopping heads, like they couldn't stop. You know, it just went on and on and on and on. Um, and and so it's a it is an apocalyptic moment that I think we're in, and there is there is truth coming through. But there's also a real terrible danger of, of you know, if, if we don't if we don't decide as humans to sort of embrace other other ways of disciplining ourselves, other ways of keeping our violence in check, because that old way is breaking down. You know, we could really uh, we could really come undone. Yeah, it's interesting because you quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So, uh, how do I say that? What's the Solzhenitsyn? Solzhenitsyn, right? Alexander Solzhenitsyn saying the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Mm. And this is, again, so this is some of the thrust of your book, right? That that when you realize that the the sort of scapegoating stuff, the temptation abates a little bit. And you, but it's so interesting because as an American right now, I think this insight is completely lost in this culture, right? Whether it's the pandemic, yeah. which is all my Canadian friends say to me, we don't understand how the hell you've politicized a public health issue to the degree we have. And we completely have. I mean, we yeah. completely have. And yeah. and it becomes this moral thing. Your stance on the virus, all this stuff becomes this sort of scapegoating tribal thing. And then with regard to policing and racial injustice, and in you're kind of either on the side of the police or you're either on the so, so the moment where it's almost like you have to engage in, in a tribal way and, and you have to accept the terms and conditions like your Apple yep. iPhone agreement. Yep. And yep. you have to agree to kind of us them yep. mentality, right? And I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, um, despite the kind of promise, I think, that you're saying can happen with, with, with some of the questions, questioning of state authority and how it affects racial oppression and justice. At the same time, there's this temptation to completely forget this line that runs down the heart of every human being and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of instead of like fostering solidarity, it seems to foster polarization. Yeah, I think so. Like I, um, like I, I tend, I tend to ally more with progressives, but I think like my, you know, my ongoing frustration with progressives is, you know, we tend to enter these conversations uh, as if social justice was like, you know, some 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 country from which we were just like very recently and scandalously expelled, and like we've landed here in this place, and we're like looking around at like who are these barbarians? Like, uh, and uh, and th- there's just like uh, like yes, l- I I, I want to get behind that project of how can we figure out how to to live, how to form a community that isn't based on on victimage and violence towards the other but like let's have some humility about you know our historic failures over and over and over again to to do that really well and and even in in our own movement like uh you know there there is you know there's such a gotcha you know like cancel culture like all like like the way in which um you know we start uh uh monitoring the edges of our tribe with you know re- real vicious attacks on anyone who thinks something a little bit different or gives any kind of credence to anyone on the other side like i i don't know if you um since the pandemic i've i've been watching uh uh 
uh, a new American uh, news show. It's rising with, um, I don't know if you've seen it with Crystal Ball and uh, Sagar and Jetty on, uh, on the Hill. It's, um, it's really interesting to me in that it's, it's, so Crystal's a, Crystal's a leftist, a Democrat, and, and Sagar is a, as a Republican, but they, they have, you know, something I find quite rare in the moment. They, they have a freedom to talk about the, the failures and the hypocrisies on their own side. Uh, and it's so refreshing. Um, and, and it creates so much, just a much more interesting conversation when, we, when we can, like, if, if we can have a conversation about what, you know, what our movement is about without having to try to pretend that we, you know, are the ones who are pure and you guys over there are the ones with all the problems. Like that's just such a circular, pointless, tribal conversation, as you said. But when you engage in conversations like that, it almost feels like you're in a speakeasy during prohibition, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it feels like you're kind of doing something illegal or you're doing right. something contraband, the, right? Yeah. And the, the but, but yeah, are really usually, yeah, it's strangely enjoyable and you get a little buzz out of it at the same time, right? Uh, yeah. But it, but it is it is sort of like prohibited in the wider culture. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, I, I think part of why I was able to write the kind of book that I was able to write is that I, I just ha- happened to have lucked out in, in living and landing in a place that's, you know, pretty far on the fringes. Um, and so uh, I just, I, 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 cause I knuckle, I knuckle under to social pressures like anyone else um, to kind of belong. I want to belong like, like anybody else does, but, but I just, I, I, you know, I, I ended up landing in a place where I'm kind of out on the edge. And so the kind of, and I sort of, when I was writing the book, I kind of tuned out a lot of like the, the regular like Facebook arguments that were going on um, just to be able to get that kind of space where it's just easier to just be honest and thoughtful and, and not have the, not have one's thinking driven by the, the controversy of the moment and what, what side of it I'm, am I on? It's interesting. One of the things I that that you, you you quote Gerard in the first chapter of your book, in the ellipsis at the beginning of the chapter, you said Christianity is not only one of the destroyed religions, but it is the destroyer of all religions. The death yeah. of God is a Christian phenomena, and that that really, you know, Karl Barth says that you know, like all religion is unbelief, including an especially Christian religion. And it seems that in the early church there was this recognition that this was true, which is why so many people were suspicious, right? Right. The Romans called them atheists. Right. They didn't fit into the kind of religious economy, the religious political economy of the landscape, right? And yet that changes, you know, the closer you get to Constantine, the more it becomes, it becomes, it becomes a religion all in itself, as opposed to a destroyer of religion, right? It's, yeah, it's this kind of it's this tra- transformation, and I mean, this is it seems to be part of what's at the spirit of your book is trying to get back to this place where where Christianity can be seen as as this as this thing that's critical of religion, which so often is what the is the it's the thing that creates the us the them and the othering and the scapegoating. Yeah, uh, rightly rightly experienced Christianity is 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 a is is a kind of disruptor of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like on a personal note, and I, and I write about this in the book. Um, you know, our, I think the emotional energy that drove the writing of this book was was a lot about trying to create some connection and some space that would hold room for for both myself 
uh, and my atheist brother, um, and uh, you know, who, who was very, very dear to me. Uh, we're very, we're very, very close. And when when he left the church and left the faith, that was that was a very painful parting uh, for for both of us. Um, and uh, and it, we, we were kind of having these fruitless uh, Facebook arguments with you know between myself and, and him and some of his other atheist buddies uh, when I when I kind of decided to take a break from all that and that's when I really got into the book and I think that sense of that to understand what Christianity does in the world is um, it's it's profoundly about knocking down false gods. You know, that, that is such a huge, that's such a huge part of what Christianity does. And, and there, of course, you know, my, my atheist brother and I are, are on the same page. Like, let's, all the false gods, like, let's, let's clean house. Um, and I think the, but I think the place where, uh, you know, the sort of sticking post that, that I have pinned myself to, and, and I think, you know, without, I mean, one one can't drag other people into into faith through one's own experiences. But I I do want to say that I I I have I have experienced you know after after that house cleaning, you know the space that opens up for me uh, through the influence of of Christian thought and Christian writers and Christian worship, you know there there is a it's not an empty silence, you know th- th- there is. There is a, a warmth, a love, a safety, uh, and, a, and a hidden wisdom that that I feel like um, you know is 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 what saved me. Um, and and I and I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks that are really and Merton talks about that kind of space, right? And 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 a lot of folks are afraid to to kind of do that cleaning out the house of, you know, all the, all the rubbish, all the sort of, you know, the, the things we get attached to as, as our, our security blankets that we learn to use in our formation in whatever religious tradition we're coming up. I mean, that's, you know, handing out security blankets is a, it's a big part of what religion does and people need security blankets at certain moments in their lives. And then like letting go of those could be really scary. And I, I can understand that. I can understand why, you know, if, if you have a, if you've come up in a tradition where like certainty about the literal truth of God, you know, is, is tied for you to your sense that, you know, there's this, this being that loves you and is going to be there for you uh, no matter what, you know, you, you start messing with that, that literal truth. And, you know, that's, that's their connection to that, that being who loves them. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to throw up, defenses um but you know we do we do so much damage to others <laughs> when we're when we're still defending the fortress and and that's so much of what you know the christian culture war kind of dynamic has turned into in in this country but i think i i mean to be i think you wouldn't disagree with me that in america there there's like i don't know just everything gets amped up to the max in america somehow yeah, yeah, I pretty, I pretty much. <laughs> that's that's a complete understatement. I'm wondering, where do you see in your own life right now the struggle with scapegoating and us theming right now? I mean, how does it play out for you on a day to day basis? Where are you aware of where you're forgetting that the dividing oh. line went? Oh man, you? like, um, 
Like to be totally honest, there's I, I I'm pastoring a, a group uh, locally called St. Julian's Table, which is kind of a, an ecumenical group that's been gathering in an, in an Anglican uh, sanctuary locally. Um, and uh, it's, it's all kind of new. And there's, uh, and there's a, there's a, there's a new community kitchen that, uh, that a friend of mine got started kind of on my uh, invitation uh, in the parish hall. And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, as a, a sort of a food security thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think in some ways, in some ways, she's kind of my mimetic double. Um, you know, she, she, like one of the things Gerard has taught me to see about fights is that, uh, you know, fights are always more, we fight more because we're alike than because we're different. Uh, and I think, uh, this other person is in some ways sort of a bit of a maverick like myself has come as a sort of an outsider to the institutional church in in a moment where it's like, oh, there's some freedom to shake things up and do some new things here. And, um, and we've gotten into some significant headbutting with each other, and it's it's so man, it, Scott. Like, as like it's like I know the script. I know I, I I understand it perfectly. Like the dynamic of like the way you know Gerard helped me understand the way we get into these rivalries and the way the differences start breaking down between us and and you know the sort of tit for tats you know way we start getting at each other and um uh. And it's so hard for me not to like, okay, like I'm going to build my team in the church and we're going to tell stories about that bad person over there and she's going to build her team and they're going to like, woo. even though I, you know, I, I understand it intellectually. It's, it is, uh, it's a real uh, spiritual discipline to like not, not go there and and leave space for the other to like reveal things to me about myself that maybe I don't want to see. and 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 for me to continue to remind myself that this person has like incredible compassion and drive to do good in the world and uh and isn't just you know my rival in some kind of goodness contest uh where one of us has to lose for the other one to win you tell a story in the book that i was not aware of it's a canadian story this uh this radio figure oh yeah uh, Gomeshi, Gian, this, Gian Gomeshi, yeah, Gian Gomeshi, yeah, who was this Canadian radio star and apparently like seemingly a probably politically correct progressive sort of figure, or whatever. Yeah. But then and a fantastic like, interviewer, he really was, and, and he winds up caught up in it, it's realized that he's done a lot of sexual harassment and and abuse, you know, non consensual sort of stuff with women in the workplace and that sort of thing. And it's interesting because you, you identify the Girardian scapegoat thing here. You say like that basically somebody had to be scapegoated here, right? It was either it's him. It's, it's or so victim, hard for us. Right? When somebody we're was going to be not to, not to devolve into like, either we're going to scapegoat like, like at the beginning of the controversy with, with Gomeshi, um, most people were ready to scapegoat, his victims and like sacrifice them, silence them. You know, it's the classic scapegoat, like silence the victim. Um, and then, and then as the, you know, there's a tipping point in the, in these kinds of uh, crises. And it's like, it, it just became clear that there was just too much against him, too much evidence, too many voices. And then I just went the other way. And, and he's, yeah, he was sort of banished. Um, to the the outer edges, but you you yeah, were going yeah. somewhere with that. So go ahead. Well, 
it's interesting because you you kind of se- seem to say that it's almost as if we do this to avoid looking at how we all play into some of these power oh yeah yeah dynamics yeah uh and, and so rather than and the men if you scapegoat him you get to sort of feel better about your own sexuality right. and sure and invariably yeah. there's probably times where we've misused our sexual power or our presence and that kind of thing and you know so there's these kinds of ways in which when we scapegoat it kind of it 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 it, it makes things neater and cleaner and oh, yeah. again it doesn't that that messy line that you talk about running down the middle of our hearts that gets erased and and again there's there's clear winners and losers and we can kind of get on with our day yeah yeah especially especially as a man like the temptation is incredible to be like in a moment like that to be like i'm not like him i'm nothing like him i've never thought anything like him i've never you know i i like i i don't look at women that way i don't think about women that way ever 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 uh, I'm not like that, and um, and I think you know the the thing the thing that I had to confront. Uh, I think because of my the, you know the Girardian influence, it just gets you to pause and think. Like you know, I don't know, I don't know that if I had that much power, if I had uh, that much fame, that much popularity, um, if I had that much institutional protection, uh, I. Would I behave differently? I hope so, Scott. But you know, I I know what testosterone does to me. What and you know does to this body and uh, uh, do, you know does to my eyeballs and the way my male gaze moves through the world. Um, and uh, yeah, I well, as Jesus says, let those without sin be the first to cast the the first stone. And uh, you know, I from something like that, I kind of have to walk away beating my breast. Yeah. You, you say something interesting around testosterone and physicality. You, you like the Catholic tradition of uh, that grace perfects nature. And you say that it, it, it saves us from an anti-nature stance, which some religions and religious people yep. kind of tend yep. to gravitate or a nature is everything stance, which kind of becomes the secular alternative, right? To this, this thing that, that, that points beyond itself, right? Mm-hmm. That you say that, you know, that, that, it means when it comes to our bodies and our brains and the funny and frightening things they're prone to, especially sexual things and aggressive things, there's no shame in what we are, but there's curiosity, openness, and longing for what we are not yet. And you say in the words of St. John, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. So that's it. That's beautiful. It, it, it seems like, again, you're trying to chart out this non-dualistic, non-polarizing space for how we think about the body and the world. Yeah. Right. And the, and the male body kind of- and, and, and particularly there, the male body and male sexuality, you know, I, I, I tell a story about our, our rooster on the farm. Uh, and, and part of why, part of why I, I wanted to tell this rooster story um, was uh, because the, you know, the rooster has the same hormones running through his body as I do. It's just that, you know, in his case, his testes are the same size as his brain. Um, and, <laughs> And you could you could kind of you know you could you could watch this this creature uh, and and you can you can see you know what it looks like for a for a creature to be like you know so run by by testosterone that he's just like you know getting into fights and 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 uh, you know climbing manure hills and sort of trumpeting about his own glory and and uh, you know very aggressively pursuing sex all around the the barnyard. 
and you can and you can look at him as this little and you could be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, but but in a way that he, like he's he, you know he's not he's not scary in in a way uh, a, a male human sexual predator is scary. Um, but it can open up that conversation about like, yeah, that's a part of me. But now, what is that part of me there for? And th- and that's the kind of ca- that's the basic Catholic question about grace perfecting nature is like, yes, this is there, but what's it there for? Uh, you know, one one can ask a question of of purpose and and direction and 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 gets a sense of like this energy can be channeled in a way that is fruitful or it can be, you know. Uh, it can spill out in ways that are just very dangerous. And, and I, and, and for me, like, I don't know, like, I don't hear, like, I think it's, it's hard for, uh, like in, in most of the feminist discourse, I, you know, there's, I don't hear a lot of openness for talking about biology. Um, you know, there's a kind of a fear of talking about biology because there, there is, you know, there, there's, um, you know, in the natural world, like sperm is abundant and cheap and eggs are precious and rare. And that sets up certain kinds of behavior patterns between males and females in all kinds of species where like the males are chasing sex and the, and the females are a lot choosier. Um, And, uh, and if, if, if we don't, if we, if we don't feel like we can talk about something beyond our nature that we're called towards, um, you know, it's easy to get into kind of a nature denying discourse where it's like, you know, that's nothing to do with it. And, and let's just talk about sort of social determinism. And, and like, like we just decided as a society that this is how females would be and this is how males would be. And now we can just like, you know, go to some some uh, liberal arts classes and we can just undo all those decisions if we just like read the right books. Uh, I, I think, I think, yeah, that's an area where we have to talk about our bodies too. And it's it's happening in the trauma literature uh, more and more in a way that's really helpful. And I, and I think eventually we need to get there around around the relationships between men and women too and other genders yeah that's interesting the trauma stuff right because we're learning now that like that trauma lives in the body in the central nervous system right and so you get these trauma responses and your brain tries to figure out what's going on with it because it's just it's your brain's feeling something that your body's feeling right yeah and they're kind of talking past each other yeah yeah and we're learning so much more about how the basic things that drive us are like are are not the things that we're most conscious of. Like we like to think that our forebrain is driving the bus. You know, it's our emotions that are driving the bus, and our our forebrain is like making up a story about why this makes sense. Um, and and even and even beneath that, to tie into some of the science around uh, mimesis, uh, we're learning that even before we think and feel, we imitate. You know, ba- like babies come out of the womb and already they are like they are just primed to imitate uh, facial movements uh, of 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 their significant others. Um, and I <clears throat> I've fallen into a, a really interesting correspondence that I, I hope is going to go somewhere. Uh, this might be a next writing project with a there's a doctor, Catherine Frost at the uh, um, I think it's University of Austin. It's some some college in Austin. Um, who's who's done some really interesting stuff about uh, mimetic theory and attachment theory, um, and I think that that whole area of of opening up like th- there's there's very there's very few folks who are have made the links between Girard's insights in mimetic theory uh, and and the wider 
psychological mainstream. Um, and I'm, I'm working right now on a, a degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, and, and I just think there's, there's just so much there that could be opened up in terms of uh, the mimetic insight. And, but it's, you know, one of the th- obstacles to overcome is this, is this kind of admission to ourselves of how, how much we're copycats, how much imitation is, is essential to what makes us. Because in, in this culture, and especially, you know, we're so attached to this idea of the original autonomous human being as, as the kind of the Holy grail of where, you know, that's, that's what you go to, to see a psychological helper for is to bring you to that place of like freedom and autonomy. Um, and, uh, like Girard coined this term of interdividual, uh, psychology, like there's who I am cannot possibly known apart from my relationships. Right. Right. In fact, you say in the beginning of the book, that you say, if James Allison is right, that the self is not so much something expressed from within as it is something that comes from others, mm. in part graciously received and in part strenuously rested. And this seems doubly true of a book. And then you thank some of the people that really helped yeah. Yeah. you develop these ideas in this journey. But that's interesting, right? That the self isn't something as much as achieved, but received, right? Yeah. That we're, that we're permeable realities, right? And And this is... And this is why the mimesis thing can be so dangerous, right? Because if, if you have this kind of scapegoating and violence and anger, and it's the mob mentality. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. And, you be- become- and, you, and humans, humans are incredibly prone to being sucked into the mob. And it's, it's our... And it's an, like mimesis is... And I think I, I was speculating this the other day, like, like the big scientific theories I see right now in, in psychology are like attachment theory and trauma theory. And... But like trauma is like unequivocally bad, attachment is good, and mimesis is fundamentally ambivalent. Um, it's it's an openness to the other that can be, you know, we can be contaminated completely by the energy of a mob because of how open we are to the other. Or right, don't you think be- in a mob? Don't, don't you think in a mob? Yep. Like I, I look at this in the protests that turn violent and looting. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's like ten percent of the people in the in the mob that they're they're not going to break the law. They're not going to loot. They're just not going to do it. And then there's probably another ten percent that they're, I'm looking for the opportunity, right? And right, the eighty percent right. is probably could go either way. Like, oh yeah, like like if the thing yeah. goes one way or the other, they're going to be. It's it's very few people that are they're apt that are going to be like the leaders to not loot or the people that are definitely. Oh man, I'm going to loot. Yeah. It's most people will be will will be driven one way or the other by the way way the wave goes. And I would say even those ten percent on either end of that continuum you just spelled out, you know the the ones the ones that are definitely not going to loot. I would say it's not because they are more autonomous. It's because the, those ten percent just happen to be more powerfully oriented to others that are outside of the event. You know, but they've they've they're, they're oriented really strongly to other models, and and the and the ones that came planning to loot, they also themselves. They're 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 profoundly oriented to models that that they've re- related to prior to the event that you know are that have inculcated in them a kind of like you know like burn burn the world that's this is our chance like like we're all profoundly open to each other um, it's it's just like the the freedom that we have uh, mimetically is never to tr- just be our own person the freedom we have is to choose who will my models be. Who am I going to orient towards? And and more specifically than that, even you know, who am I going to uh, orient to in in what way? You know, like like at the beginning of this podcast when you when you uh, introduced me, 
I love watching Cornell West. And I've noticed that one of the things Cornell West always does whenever he shows up somewhere is the first thing he does is he does an affirmation and a blessing. And, and I, like, I very consciously imitated that when I, cause it's like, that's, that's how I want to be. But, you know, I, uh, I probably don't want to be like Cornell in, in the difficulty he seems to have, like committing to like one particular woman in his life. And that's fine. You know, he, he'd probably be happy that I'm not like, I'm not modeling myself on him in that way. And, and that also saves us from, uh, like, like no one, no one is, uh, no one is a perfect model. And, and, you know, we create these heroes, we put them on pedestals inevitably, you know, that breaks down both for the model and the subject because, uh, it, it robs the real personhood of the, of the model uh, and it and it insists to the subject like you 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 can never be like me because um, I'm so perfect and and that's I mean that's not getting us anywhere. You spend a lot of time in, 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 or a good section of the book talking about uh, your journey with LGBT folks. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found so fascinating is because you talk about Harvey Milk as right. as, as a Christ figure because he yeah he speaks truth to power knowing it's going to cost him his life and uh, after this courageous brief you know brilliant political career he's betrayed by his own judas and uh, this jealous ally turned assassin and in the wake of his death he leaves his testament and a new community is born and and and, and the streets of san francisco fill with these candle bearing mourners and and, yeah. and they're deeply it's grieved cr- but they have new courage and, and hope yeah it's a christ narrative totally and yet you talk about you're sharing this with with a gay couple i think and they really struggled that because of the legacy of right sure of scapegoating and us versus them sort of stuff, especially in relation to the LGBT community in the church, that what for you was a clear Christ story, they just couldn't, like a Christ story for them, it seems like it couldn't be good news. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's just so sad, isn't it? Um, and it's, it speaks to, I think, how, how poorly the Christian church has preached the gospel and and how poorly we've understood the gospel and and i think i mean i mean you talked about constantine earlier you know i think a lot of it has to do with playing handmaiden to power for a long long time um and so uh aspects of the gospel that were convenient to to power we held on to those and and anything that interfered with the machinations of power um you know, we we cast that out of our our midst for the most part, and and uh, and I and that's and you know, for me, in terms of the best part of my tradition, like you know, that's what the Anabaptists asked hard questions about. Um, I mean, my my ancestors were just as homophobic as anyone else's. I um, I had to do a genealogy project for uh, for my family therapy training recently, and I did some digging and found out that I've got a gay uncle too who. Uh, was was beaten with a chain by my great grandfather when he when he came out. Um, so there's, yeah, I, I mean it's it's part of that. It's it's a certain like I beaten with a chain. That sounds harsh. Like uh, yeah, yeah. No, why no, not? Oh, not? And that's just unusual. Not a bat. Not a not a tool. Yeah, a chain. I I, I I I I don't know if it was just what was handy in the farmyard or you know a switch. He just felt like wasn't enough to take you know beat this particular demon out of his son i don't i don't know um but i so so you so one like and we were talking earlier about trauma and how it lives in the body right like 
like queer folk have trauma in their bodies uh, that uh, is very profoundly and very specifically tied to church and, and church stories and church language. Um, and so that, that's, you know, m- me coming along and, and sharing like one particular uh, analysis of the, of the Harvey Milk movie isn't going to like suddenly uh, make that all go away. I, I, and I think, and maybe to, we haven't talked about Illich much. I think, you know, Illich talks about friendship and I think basically. I and don't Illich, of course, is, Illich is this Roman Catholic priest from the like yeah. 60s, 70s, 80s kind of figure. And he, he is a kind of figure that lives, at first he's kind of elevated in the church and then he's kind of marginalized in the church. But he's this powerful intellectual, I mean, bordering on anarchism at some point. And, but he he has these deep, deep um, love of friendship and communion and, 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 and the power of the common table and, and sitting around drinking cheap wine and, and sharing at the table, it, it can lead to this kind of dispelling of the us neming, right? Like in, yeah. in, in the context for a reimagined way of being in the world. Yeah. He has a, he has a very profound critique of institutions uh, and his, his answer is is the symposium around the table of, of friendship, um, and I think you know as as far as you know me sharing these stories with my my queer friends, um, it's it's only in like long lasting authentic real friendship with me that they will ever get a sense about whether this is bullshit or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's no there's no like me repeating you know, a, a sharper and sharper argument about like, you know, uh, why, uh, you know, why I, I see the Christian gospel as, you know, s- central as a liberatory uh, event in Western culture that, that brings with it eventually the, the liberation of queer folk in, in our particular time, like as a philosophical argument, I'm glad I sort of recorded it in the book, but in terms of real, real persuasion it's only through friendship that you know anyone will get a sense about whether that's real or not you talk about in the, towards the end of the book you say that there's a real difference between the everything everyone is welcome banquet of jesus and the, and the anything goes orgy of Dion, of dionysius right that this kind of dionysius the greek god of the symposium you know of the of the bacchanalia of the of the drinking party and the engagement he's like look they seem similar, and they are similar in some ways. Right. Yeah. But that, but that, uh, that, that you say the Christian kind of story places love before ethics, rather than our ethics before the possibility of love, which I thought was very profound. Can you unpack that a little bit? When, what does it mean to place love before ethics, rather than ethics before the possibility of love? I mean th- that that is very specifically uh, an idea that I that I take from Illich. Uh, and that was a, was a real breakthrough for me. Um, and so, so Illich talks about how, uh, you know, the Greeks had a sense of, of the ethic of the city um, uh, and the virtues. The virtues are given to sort of to make one a good citizen of the city. But one's birth into the city is kind of like uh, that's that's the primary event. One has a one has a people. The people have an ethic. There's there's and and the ethic gives the people kind of like guidelines about if you if you follow these virtues, if you follow this ethic, then you will be good friends. Then the city will flourish. Uh, 
And and the thing that Illich says is just so profoundly uh, different and, and turns that on its head in the encounter with the, the Good Samaritan is that the Samaritan and the Jew have no common ethic before their encounter. Um, and, and the Samaritan decides to basically to love the wounded Jew in the ditch without any kind of, there's no rules, there's no template for this situation. He reaches out across, outside of the, the bounds of his, his tribal container that tells him how to be a good person, that in fact tells him you should have nothing to do with that person over there. Um, and he breaks those bounds and decides to connect with this person. And, and Illich's sense that when Illich is inviting people to the table, that he gathers. Illich always Illich kept a, a stub of a candle in his pocket that he would pull out anytime he sat down with with one or two other people. I should I should really as a disciple I should have a candle burning <laughs> even in this virtual space between between yourself and myself. Uh, a candle that stands for him for the other, the one who stands at the door and knocks. The, the circle is always open for the possibility of another joining. And then uh, and then around food and wine was his sense. You, you invite people to the table who otherwise would never meet, and they decide to engage lovingly with one another, and then have conversations about what is true, then have conversations about what is right, then have conversations about what kind of ethic might we construct that could make our togetherness peaceable. But, but there's this radical move to commit to the other before you have a, a, a you know, before you know the rules of the game. Yeah, that's beautiful, and it, where love becomes the it becomes the thing that creates the possibility for conversation. It's not the it's not the fruit of the conversation. It's it's mm-hmm. what makes space for yeah, it to even happen. It's the primary mover, Marcus. This is uh, I, I hope that your tribe increases, and that the more people that would read your book would create spaces and tables like that, so that we could get beyond some us versus. Yeah themness and, and get to a kind of uh, community, a real beloved community where love, mm. love does reign and rule. Thanks so much for writing well, the book. Well, thanks, for, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like you are nurturing that space, you know, that you named uh, so well with your podcast and uh, it's a blessing to, to connect and uh, give, give greetings to David Norling. Uh, I know you mentioned him every time as a supporter. He was also a supporter of the book and I'm just deeply grateful to, to him and and uh, and all the others who who foster these kind of spaces. So peace and all good. Thank you, my friend. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.